Hello, and welcome back to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 94 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. You can trust me to use the same template every week. It's the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it all about. And then I answer three really important questions. One, does it stand the test of time? Two, is it Oscar worthy? Three, should you watch it? Or is this worse than the gigantic hairball your cat puked up on your bed this morning? Just as a friendly reminder, along with my honest assessment of these movies, you'll get my hot takes on many current events, a fair amount of ranting about the things that piss me off, and it's always mixed with a heaping dose of adult language, so please be sure to listen with caution. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. And with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is My Fair Lady. It was released October 21st, 1964. It is directed by George Cukor. It stars Audrey Hepburn, Rex Harrison, Wilfred Hyde-White, and Stanley Holloway. It was nominated for a total of 12 Oscars, and it won eight of them. It won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Scoring of Music, Best Sound, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, and Best Costume Design. In 1988, the American Film Institute named it the 91st greatest American film of all time, and in 2006, it was ranked 8th on the AFI's list of greatest musicals of all time. If you want to watch it, it can be found on Paramount Plus for free if you have a subscription, or Amazon Prime, Vudu, or Redbox for $3.99. So what is it about? It is set in London in 1912. Eliza Doolittle, played by Audrey Hepburn, is a young woman raised on the less fortunate side of the tracks. She's 21 years old and works selling flowers at the Covenant Garden Street Market. She doesn't own a shop or a a booth. She's just one of those ladies who walks around with a basket of flowers and she sells them to people passing by. Eliza stands out quite a bit. She has what I'm going to describe as a vivacious spirit and a loud and sometimes screeching way about her. She speaks with a strong Cockney accent. I looked this up. It is an English dialect spoken in London, predominantly by the working class and lower middle class residents. Makes total sense. Eliza is single, childless, and has no family other than a lazy drunk of a father who frequently mooches beer money from her. So essentially, the poor girl is completely on her own. By pure coincidence, she meets Professor Henry Higgins, played by Rex Harrison, and he happens to be a scholar of phonetics. I promise you've never encountered a man more fanatical about his line of work. Higgins has a strong ear for accents and grammar, and he very proudly stereotypes or I guess categorizes people based on their language skills. He's a purist when it comes to the English language and strongly believes that anyone who doesn't speak with the perfect accent or grammar is most definitely a lesser person, often not worthy of being a functioning member of society. 
In fact, he feels that they should be subjected to extreme disrespect, degradation, and abject humiliation. I know, you're probably thinking, gosh, this Henry Higgins guy sounds like a piece of shit. And yeah, you'd be right. But we're not even 10 minutes into the movie. So hold on to your knickers because there's a lot more to come. The night that Eliza meets Henry Higgins, they both also make the acquaintance of Colonel Hugh Pickering, who coincidentally is also a phonetics expert. Amazing, that seems to be such a popular career in 1912. The two men get to talking about Eliza and how completely dysfunctional she must be having to live her life with that hideous accent. Higgins, having remarkable confidence in his ability to teach even the most wretched people how to speak more eloquently, bets Pickering that he could teach that pitiful little flower seller to speak so well he could pass her off as a duchess at the embassy ball. Now Eliza, having had a night to think about it, shows up at Henry Higgins' house the next day and says she wants to hire him to teach her to speak like a lady. You gotta hand it to her. I do give her credit. She recognizes that she doesn't have a lot of options in life. And and trust me, she's not trying to catch the moon. She just wants to maybe work in a proper flower shop or a dress shop or be employed as a housekeeper or a cook and in the home of a well-to-do English family. And she knows she won't ever get the opportunity if she doesn't learn to speak in a more respectable and ladylike manner. She takes a really big step to better herself, even though she knows it's going to be very difficult. Luckily, Henry Higgins, and in cahoots with Colonel Pickering, believe me, it's both of them doing this, they love a good challenge, and Henry is willing to coach her, but only if she agrees to do 100% exactly what he says at all times. She's making a little bit of a deal with the devil here, but Eliza knows that if she can survive this, it will immeasurably change her life for the better. At his insistence, Eliza moves into a spare room in Henry's house so he can monitor her progress every minute of the day. Over the next couple weeks of her residency, we come to see that Higgins has a very demanding and unorthodox teaching style. It's apparent he's willing to use intimidation tactics, sleep deprivation, and even starvation to motivate her. And Eliza, who demonstrates uh, a very deep and wide and expansive learning curve, isn't exactly the most ideal student. I'm no phonetics scholar, nor am I an expert in accents. But this movie teaches us that the Cockney accent in particular leaves one with a complete lack of articulation and oddly causes them to speak at a volume level that's exponentially louder than everyone else in the room. For example, Higgins will say, Eliza, repeat after me, A-E-I-O-U. And Eliza will say, And this goes on for about another 60 minutes of the movie until finally Eliza has a breakthrough. Thank the good Lord. And it's not a moment too soon. After all of the late nights, the lack of food, the extreme verbal abuse, and the threats to be beaten with a broomstick, she finally utters her first words of perfect English. And it's as if the sky has opened up and the sun has shone brightly for the very first time. Higgins and Pickering want to take her out for a test drive. So they dress her up all fancy and take her to the Ascot racetrack, where she will mingle with some upper crust horse racing fans, including Higgins' own mother. 
And much to her credit, Eliza pulls it off. She manages, at least for the short term, to convince everyone there that she's a proper lady. At Ascot, she meets a young, upper-class gentleman named Freddie, who is immediately smitten with her. And since this is well before we had laws against stalking, it seems perfectly okay that Freddie would follow Eliza back to Higgins' home and wait for what seems like days, hoping she'll come out so he can profess his love for her. And then it's time for the ultimate test. Higgins and Pickering are going to take Eliza to the embassy ball and see if they can pass her off as a duchess. And this part is really incredibly magical. From the moment she comes down the stairs in Higgins' home to the moment she's dancing with a foreign prince, she is perfect in every way. Her dress, her confidence, the complete sophistication, and she captures the attention of every single person in attendance. For a few moments, you realize that it was worth it. All the embarrassment, cruelty, and hardship she experienced led her to this moment, and it's worth it. You see for the first time that Eliza Doolittle is about to make something of herself. But her bubble is burst when they return to Higgins' home after the ball. Higgins and Pickering are congratulating themselves on a job well done, as if this entire thing was a work project they managed to complete just under a deadline and are now ready to move on to the next big thing. Eliza becomes painfully aware that they are not her friends, they are not her family, and this is not her home. She was simply a task for them to check off their to-do list, and now they're done with her. So Eliza storms out in a fit of rage, and she heads back to her old neighborhood. But she immediately realizes that she no longer fits in there either. She ends up at the home of Henry's mother, who is outraged at her son's bad behavior, and advises Eliza to forget about him and to go out and make a life for herself. She's a smart, strong, capable woman and could easily be very successful. Eliza knows she's right, but a big part of her is afraid to take the leap. She's not entirely sure she's ready to be an independent woman. That's when Higgins shows up and admits that his home is a little bit empty without her. Well, I don't need to tell you how it ends. I guess sometimes we can't explain what keeps people together, but in the end, this is two less people who are lonely, so I guess it works out the way it should. Question one. Does my fair lady stand the test of time? <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> absolutely not. I mean, well, hold on. Let me restate that. The music does. The music does. Once again, we are talking about a dynamite soundtrack, several fun, catchy songs that are still relevant years later. Funny story. I have never seen this movie, nor had I had any knowledge of what any of the music was that was in it. The first time I watched it, I'm with my mom and she's singing along to every song and I'm hearing them for the very first time, or so I thought. We get to the song, I could have danced all night, I could have danced all night, which is Audrey Hepburn's smash musical number. Except in truth, she didn't really sing because she couldn't sing, at least not at the caliber they needed. So they had to dub in another woman's voice over hers, which, by the way, wouldn't have been an issue if they had done the right thing in the first place and cast Julie Andrews, who can sing. But that's water under the bridge. Back to the song. It comes on and I immediately recognize it. Why? How do I know the words to this song? Because in 1996, the movie The Birdcage came out. It's a remake of La Cage Fall. It stars Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. 
as a gay couple who own a drag club. And Nathan Lane is the celebrated drag queen who is the star of the show. The two of them have to play it straight for one night because they are meeting their son's fiance's family who are far right ultra Christian conservative people. So these four parents get into a room and there's only two things they can agree on champagne and show tunes. So there is this great scene where they're all tipsy singing and dancing around the living room, having the time of their lives singing, I could have danced and danced. And that's how I know this song. (laughs) And that's a true testament of music standing the test of time. The same song in two movies that are made 30 years apart. And I've watched The Birdcage probably at least a half a dozen times. And I had no idea that that delightful song was from My Fair Lady. By the way, if you haven't seen The Birdcage or haven't watched it in a while, or maybe you just need to spend a couple of hours wrapping yourself up in the pure joy that is Robin Williams, please go watch it. It has a ton of heart and it's really fucking funny. One more thing about the music before I go on. And I know this will not be easy to hear for some of you, but the music is literally the only thing about this movie that I liked. Well, that and the costumes, but I'll get into that later. If we were to separate the music from the rest of the script and just let it play out song after song, kind of like a a rock opera where the music tells the whole story, that would have made it really enjoyable for me. But it's all the talking that pretty much ruins it for me. Keep in mind, this is a very long movie. It's just shy of three hours, which is already a long time to keep my attention when there's no car chases, no explosions, and no sex. But what makes it far worse is that the script is filled with cruelty classism, sexism, degradation, threats of violence. It's just a big fucking mess. And I'm watching it wondering, who would write this script? Who sits down at their typewriter and puts these words on paper? Who would actually think this is a comedy? A man, a man in 1964 is your answer. And because it's supposed to take place in 1912, That gives him all the green light he needs to make the female protagonist suffer beyond belief. I own up to the fact that part of my frustration is the inconsistency, the the 50-50 nature of Eliza's feminism. There are these brilliant moments where she shows great strength of character. She says, you're mean to me and you treat me like dirt and I deserve better. And then five minutes later, she says, I know I'm just a common, ignorant girl, and I'm like, God damn it, Eliza, you were so close. But the writer doesn't want Eliza to break the glass ceiling. In fact, she's written in a way that tries to get you to be okay with how she's treated, or at least enable it. Not just because historically we can say, well, that's just how life was for women back then, but he specifically wrote Eliza as someone who is poor, undereducated, has no real family to speak of no husband because, you know, who would marry a creature like her? And then he also makes her loud and uncouth and unkempt and argumentative. It's specifically designed to make us go along with how she's being treated as if it's all okay. If this movie were released today, I don't think Eliza would waver the way she does. This character today, in spite of everything that's against her, would still have a great sense of pride. I'm 53 years old, and I swear to you, I've never once in my lifetime heard another woman say, I'm just a common, ignorant girl. It doesn't happen. In fact, in today's version, 
the grand experiment of Eliza moving into the home of Henry Higgins and discovering his cruel, sadistic methods firsthand would be very short-lived, I assure you, because on day five, we'd see the police arrive to arrest Eliza Doolittle because she's killed him in his sleep, and he deserves it. Let me share with you some exact quotes said by Henry Higgins in the movie. Eliza says, I have the right to be here if I like, same as you, to which he responds, a woman who utters such disgusting and depressing noises has no right to be anywhere, has no right to live. Charming, am I right? And this is nine minutes and 49 seconds into the movie. And by the way, Eliza has done nothing wrong. She's committed no crime. She's not a pervert. She's not a tax evader. He shows disdain for her because her accent offends his precious ears. He believes she has no right to live because she's poor, she's dirty, and she talks a little bit funny. It gets worse. He says things like, you are a disgrace. You are deliciously low. You're horribly dirty. He refers to her as baggage and says he should throw her out a third story window. He threatens to beat her with a broomstick. He calls her a draggle-tailed gutter snipe and a barbarous wretch, a presumptuous insect, and an impotent hussy. He refers to her as the creature and this thing I've created. Bottom line, the script and even some of the lines in a couple of the songs are very problematic in 2022. And I know I'm not alone in this thinking. Time Magazine had an article back in 2014 when the movie celebrated its 50th anniversary talking about how it's so incredibly misogynistic and that Eliza, who in some circles is a celebrated feminist, ruins it all with her final decision at the end of the movie. And as recently as July of this year, there was an article in the Memphis newspaper about a current stage revival that had come to their city, and the writer discusses how much of the script was changed to adapt to a current audience. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? Well, it won eight of them, so I can't say it's not worthy. And I wholeheartedly agree with several of those wins. I just don't think that if I was an Academy voter, that I would have voted for it for best picture. Best scoring of music? Yes. Best sound? Yes. Best cinematography? Sure. Best costume design? Oh, hell yeah. The costumes in this are magnificent. The hats alone. Okay. There's a scene where they go to the horse race and it's amazing. Think of the modern day Kentucky Derby. It's a fashion statement for all the women to wear these really beautiful hats. And in this movie, they aren't just beautiful. They are huge. The brims on some of them are so large that you have to stand an arm's length away from people. The scene where Eliza goes to the embassy ball, all of the dresses are colorful and creative and beautiful. And Eliza's dress is somewhat simplistic by comparison, but it is so well suited to Audrey Hepburn. She just looks so incredible in it and it takes your breath away. Other movies nominated that year were Dr. Strangelove, Zorba the Greek, Beckett, and Mary Poppins. On the surface, this might not sound like a strong group, but My Fair Lady and Beckett were both nominated for 12 Oscars and Mary Poppins for 13. This was the only time in history that three films got 12 or more Oscar nominations. For me, I'd pick Mary Poppins, but I wasn't around in 1964 when My Fair Lady first came out. 
I'm sure if I'd been 25 at the time and had grown up in a world of chronic misogyny, I might have been just fine with it. But here I am today, and I'm not okay with it. Rex Harrison won for Best Actor. I'd like to think it's because Rex Harrison in real life is a kind, gentle, amiable man who treats others with respect and tolerance and equality, so much so that playing a character like Henry Higgins would seem like an incredible stretch. Kind of like Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man, something so complete opposite of who you are in real life that Oscar voters can't help but think, wow, this guy has range. An interesting side note, from the moment that Eliza arrived in Henry Higgins' home, I took one look at the place and said, is he gay? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I watched it for a second time. I couldn't help but notice some of the indications. He's a 40-year-old confirmed bachelor. Okay, that's fine. I myself have never been married. But he's living in his home with a male friend who is also a 60-year-old confirmed bachelor. And the way Henry dresses, his gestures, his disdain for relationships with women. I mean, there's an entire song about it. And his home, the way it's decorated, the curtains, the furniture, the wallpaper. I mean, they make him seem like a big old queen, let's be honest. But it doesn't match his behavior. Gay men are traditionally very kind and funny and loving and supportive, especially of other marginalized people. So we know he's not gay. But let me really burst your bubble. Maybe it's the exact opposite. It is entirely possible that it's 1964 and Henry Higgins is the first documented incel. Makes a lot more sense. Google it and you'll see what I mean. Stanley Holloway, who played Eliza's father, Alfred P. Doolittle, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but he didn't win. I'm going to blow your mind with this next statement, but here it is. I contend that the character of Alfred P. Doolittle could be cut from the movie altogether and you wouldn't even miss him. Now, he does have a couple of great musical numbers, which would sadly need to be cut. He sings, just a little bit of luck, just a little bit, and get me to the church on time. But as you're watching or rewatching it, I challenge you to determine if there is anything this character does to move the story along. I don't think so. He doesn't really have a relationship with Eliza. So instead, they could have just said, you know, both her parents are dead and she's been on her own for years. Same difference. There's a scene where he finds out that Eliza has gone off to live with a rich man on the nice side of town. So Alfred pays Higgins a visit. Now, it may be out of morbid curiosity, like, is she going to marry this man or has she been kidnapped? But Alfred admits he didn't come to take her back. So why does he have to show up there at all? Again, it could have just been written that Eliza made the decision on her own. And since there's no family, no one would come looking for her. But since it's 1912 and a daughter was still her father's property, Alfred talks Higgins into giving him five pounds in exchange for Eliza. So essentially, Alfred P. Doolittle is a human trafficker who just sold his daughter to a strange man. And if you're wondering, five pounds in 1912 is the equivalent to $802.42 today in American money. So he's obviously not a very good human trafficker. I hate to sound cold, but cut his ass out of the movie. We don't need him. I'd like my 30 minutes back. Question three, should you watch it? Oh, 
man. Okay, if you're over the age of 70 or you have grown up as a theater kid, you probably love this movie and will watch it over and over. And that's okay. Like I said, the musical part of this musical is very enjoyable. I'm not sure if I would recommend for you to watch it or not. Let me tell you about my experience and you can decide for yourself. I first watched it with my mom a couple months ago. I had just gotten off a plane. I was jet lagged and I had a horrible cold. So I wasn't in the right frame of mind. I didn't like it at all, but I chalked it up to being sick. Maybe I'm just not getting all the jokes. I'm tired. It just didn't sit well with me for, for whatever reason. Fast forward to this last week when I knew I had to watch it again, this time with a clear head so I could give an honest review. I'm not kidding you when I tell you it took me three nights to finish it. The first night I only lasted about 40 minutes until I had to turn it off and go do something else. Now I fully recognize that I'm hypersensitive when it comes to equality and justice and fairness and tolerance. And I just couldn't escape the feeling that this movie was just so mean spirited. I ended up watching it in bite-sized chunks with breaks in between, which helped. If you're going to watch it, you go into it knowing that there's some pretty cruel treatment of people who simply don't deserve it. To be honest, this theme has been done many times. You've all seen it. It's Pretty Woman. It's Pretty in Pink. It's She's All That. It's even trading places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. The theme of I bet I can turn this piece of coal into a diamond is a very common Hollywood trope. And it often contains moments where the sweet little piece of coal is manipulated and made fun of. It's never easy to watch. But more often than not, the brand new shiny diamond gets the ending they were hoping for. So who am I to judge? Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 10 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. If you have a comment, maybe I got some facts wrong, or you just want to tell me I have shit taste, you can email cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org. And the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio. And if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations. So please be generous. Thanks and see you next week.